0: All right, we're going to do this uh, one more time, and you will respond, all of you. We're going to do it like I do with my preschoolers, all right? So first we're going to whisper it, and then we're going to do it loud. What I'm going to do is I'm going to say, he is risen, and then you're going to say, he is risen indeed, all right? So you're going to say it quietly, whisper. We'll see who paid attention in classes growing up, all right? He is risen That was not a whisper on any category. All right, but well, that works. That works. Good job. Now we're going to do it loud, all right? So if you have hearing aids, you might want to, right? He is, he is risen. He is risen All right. Hey, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. My preschoolers get you guys, though. Hands down, they win. All right, so today, happy Easter, happy Resurrection Sunday. Christ is risen. He is alive, and he is ruling and ruling reigning. And today, today we celebrate with literally millions from around the globe, from all times and ages since the resurrection of Christ, the celebration of a man who rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. He ascended into heaven after showing himself to more than 500 people. He ate the, the scriptures say that his worshipers fell at his feet and grabbed hold of his feet and worshiped. And you say, why does it say his feet? Because they're trying to stress that he wasn't a spirit or a ghost or a phantom of some type. He is alive in flesh. They grabbed his feet. He's alive. He's alive. Oh, many would seem that this is a foolish concept today. Foolish, religion is a crutch, they would say, and I would say I need a wheelchair because I'm broken and I mean that. So amen, yes, we need Christ and he fixes the broken, the downcast, the lame, the sick, the blind, he gives life to the dead. Now if you're here, there's a lot of you here, there's a lot of visitors here get close, because you know you have those on Maui time who are going to come in still yet later, right? So get close, make room for others. But if you're here, I'm going to take it in a crowd this size. There are some here that maybe do not believe in the resurrection. You're visiting. You're just checking it out. It's Easter. Maybe a friend drug you along. Maybe you're here to just Honor your parents because they said, you know, what do you want? I want you to come to church with me for Easter, right? And you're here being a good friend, good child, good whatever, right? Good job. We're glad you're here. If that's you, if that's you, you don't believe in the resurrection, you're like, this is, that's uh, not really me. I'm glad that's true for you, but not good for me. Well, I just want you to know it's not my aim this morning to prove the resurrection to you. It's not my aim. I'll give you a little secret that we all know is not a secret, that I cannot prove the resurrection to you this morning in a manner sufficient to satisfy your desire for empirical evidence. I can't do it. I can't. I'm not going to try. I could give you the evidence. I would say it's overwhelming. I would say there's no better explanation... And I would also say that even if there was video footage of the resurrection that you could watch and replay over and over again, that you still would not believe. Say, how do you know that? Because the people who saw Jesus, who saw his miracles, who heard his teaching, who saw him do the things he did, still didn't believe. So what makes you think you're any different? Or if you still don't believe me, take the national news, current news. Note all the high-profile crime cases in which they have video surveillance of the thing happening. Has that worked to change the minds of those who watch it? No. No, because at the end of the day, it's ultimately going to boil down to your faith, what you are going to choose to believe. So it's not so much a lack of evidence as much as it is a hardness of heart. You say, oh man, already... Pastors laying in the people, right? All right. No, 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 no. Well, I hope not to lay in too hard, but the issue is true. And let's just get our cards on the table. My aim is not to prove the resurrection to you so much as it is to proclaim the resurrection to you. The scriptures say faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to proclaim the Word of God to you. It is Easter Sunday. And so you know what that means? This is the biggest holiday in all of Christendom. Bigger than Easter. Bigger than... Check it out. See, it's been a long day. Right? No, Uh, I was up at sunrise. That's why. Bigger than Christmas. It's bigger than all of these things. So you know what that means for us? That means Pastor Randy gets to go long. Amen? Amen? So instead of my normal two hours, I'm going to go about two and a half, right? And all the visitors are like, does he go two hours? Did you check them? <laughs> right? No, I'm not going to go two hours. I'm going to go three. All right. So we need grace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your love towards us in Christ. Lord, that here in his love, Not that we have loved you, but you have loved us. And you sent your son, your only son, to be a propitiation for our sins. Lord, your love is so great that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And now he lives for us, never to die again. And you promised that as you ascended back to the Father, that you would leave with us your Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. So I pray now that your spirit would be here, be with us, speak through your word, and for your glory, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Our passage is in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 10. We're going to camp out mostly in verse 10, but that's a short passage. We read it once, I'm going to read it again. Here it goes. If you put these things before the brothers... For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So what we're going to do is Paul gives his grounds actually at the end of the paragraph. So he says, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God. So what I'm going to do is we're going to start in verse 10 and work our way backwards. We're going to see three things, three aspects of this passage this morning. One, Paul says, we have our hope set on the living God. So what we're going to do is we're going to see the the nature of hope. That's number one. The nature of hope. Number two, we're going to see the object of hope. The object of that hope. And number three, we're going to see the results of that hope. The results that hope produces. So, the nature of the hope, the object of the hope, and the results of the hope. Number one, the nature of this hope. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God. Now, non-Christians, a divine hope historically in a different manner than Christians define hope. It's a little bit different. There's a small but significant difference. Now, for the unbeliever, worldly hope, you might say something like, I hope the pastor doesn't preach three hours. I hope he was joking, right? That's what we may say. And it's it's kind of a desire, a wish, a somewhat good idea that something will take place. It's little more than a wish. But Christian hope is a little bit different, See, Christian hope isn't just a mere wish. Christian hope is a strong confidence that God is going to bring about his promises because that is what he has promised to do. Christian hope has the power to produce change in how we live. Now you say, what's the difference? They sound kind of the same. The difference is that hope in the ordinary usage and Christian usage is separated by certainty. See, for the Christian, we have this certain hope. It's not that a mere wish. It is something that will come to pass based on the nature and character of God. John Piper, he defines hope as faith in the future tense. So you can think of it that way. Hope is faith projected in the future. Hope is a powerful thing. We know this. All of our modern science, technology, uh, pressing ever on into the, the regions of the unknown, into the depths of space, the depths of the sea, the depths of the mind, still hasn't been able to capture this concept of hope. Psychology Today ran an article in 2013. And this is what the author stated, I quote, If I could find a way to package and dispense hope, I would have a pill more powerful than any antidepressant on the market. Hope is the only thing between man and the abyss. As long as a patient, individual, or victim has hope, they can recover from anything and everything. However, if they lose hope, unless you can help them get it back, all is lost. One thing I can tell you is that hope is an emotion that springs from the heart, not the brain. Hope lays dormant until its amazing strength is beckoned, supplying a sheer belief that you will overcome, you will persevere, and you will endure anything and everything that comes your way. Close quote. Interesting. Very interesting. Interesting. Coming from a non-Christian, a psychologist, in this instance, he is correct. Hope is an emotion that springs from the heart, not the brain. That's why some people can have hope in the most illogical circumstances. A man died, and now he's alive. Hope springs from the heart. It does have something to do with the brain. And it's also interesting that long before psychology today was in existence, the Proverbs of Solomon said this, keep your heart with all vigilance. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Why? For from it flows the springs of life. Interesting, thousands of years before psychology today and all of its modern studies. It took a couple millennia to catch up, but at least they said it. Hope is powerful If somebody has it, they can overcome anything and everything. When you don't have it, all hope is lost. Everything descends into chaos. You know, another fascinating observation that Scripture makes that he noted in his definition or his discussion about hope, another interesting observation, Scripture metaphorically refers to the heart, to the human heart, as a heart of stone. See, apart from an active relationship with God, that is what your heart is. It is a heart of stone. It, does not, it is not capable of producing this hope on its own. It is dead. What does a stone produce? You say, nothing. When you guys are like, man, I'm so thirsty. I'm going to go to this fountain, and I'm going to get something to drink, and you pick up a stone, right? And you're like, nobody does that. Stones produce Nothing, and the scriptures say our heart, apart from an active relationship with God, is like a heart of stone. There's no life. Now, this is why they don't have a way to manufacture it. This is why you can't manufacture hope. Because with all the observations and contributions of modern psychology, one thing they can't touch is the heart, they cannot penetrate the heart. And so you can't prescribe what you can't make. I love what he says, if only there was a way to package or dispense hope. If only, right? You walk in here and I know in this room there are things that are happening on your home lives that are painful that you will leave here and you'll go right back into and they won't change. It can be very hopeless. It can be very despairing. If only there was a way. If only there's a way to package hope and dispense it to the masses. Or is there? Or is there? What if if it's already been done? And this leads us to the second point. That was the nature of hope, the object of this hope. Paul says, We have our hope set on the living God. Who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe? Now, if Christian hope is this strong confidence that God's promises will come to pass, then surely it's worth meditating on the object of that hope, because the object of that hope makes a difference. Amen? Suppose if I'm drowning, I'm drowning. In a class full of beginning swimmers, they say, I'll save you, somebody help him. The object of my hope suddenly is not giving me very much hope. Or I can take great comfort that I'm not alone, but you know what, they're powerless to save me because they can't even swim themselves. The object of our hope makes a difference. And Paul says, the object of our hope, we have set our hope on the living God living God. It doesn't just say on God, but on the living God. See, something happened. Something happened. When Jesus was crucified, when his lifeless, bloody body was laid in that tomb and sealed, and he died. Hope didn't lay dormant. Hope died with him. But three days later, Something miraculous happened. That heart that had stopped beating began to pump fresh blood and oxygen into the veins and into the muscles of Christ. His his lungs began to inhale and Jesus rose back to life and a special type of hope was born, a new type of hope, not like any hope that was there before. See, Peter calls this hope a living hope and says that we were born again to this living hope that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us, our hope is set on a living God because our hope is set on Jesus, who is a living Savior. Oh, and when the angels, those angels that were dispatched on that morning from the throne of God to deliver the message, to remove the tomb. I love what Nick said. They didn't roll the stone back so that Jesus could get out. They rolled the stone back so that those who were on the outside could look in. Jesus didn't need help getting out of the tomb. We needed help getting in. Oh, can you imagine the joy of those women, the the confusion, the the hope rising when they hear this man, this being who says to them, he is not here. He is risen. Everything changed after that. Everything changed and it would never be the same. And what happens when Peter and John hear this news? You remember Peter? Peter? Peter, who denied him, the last words he says is, I don't know the man. And Jesus, right at that time, looks at him in the eyes. Remember, John, who fled from him in the garden? Peter and John, they hear this news, and the scriptures say they ran to the tomb. They didn't walk. They weren't nonchalant. Hope changed everything. They ran. How did they run wearing those tunics? I don't know. But they ran. Why did they run? Because our God is not dead. Our hope is set on the living God. Now, this is not necessarily good news. It's not. The fact that Jesus died and is alive is actually not necessarily good news for all people. Why? Because he rose again as the king of kings and lord of lords. That means he has the power to give life and to execute whomever he pleases. It's not good news if you don't know that this king means good for you. Just imagine if you had an enemy who died and came back to life to die no more. That is not hope giving That is terrifying. This is exactly what Herod thought after he killed John the Baptist. Herod thought he had come back to life and he was going to get it. But no, this is not necessarily good news if you don't know that this all-powerful, never-again-to-die King of Kings and Lord of Lords is not for you. This is the function of the rest of the sentence. We have our hopes set on the living God... What else does it say? Who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. See, the good news this Easter morning is that no matter who you are, red, yellow, black, and white... They are precious in His sight. No matter who you are, no matter what kind of sinner you are, no matter what type of things you have done or whatever your breed and background comes from, your, your parents, however they raised you, there is no category that you can place yourself in that Jesus can't save you from. Amen. It's true. That means That your lifestyle, as broken as it is because of Christ, you can change. You can change. The struggles you have right now, the wrong things people have done to you, how you grew up, you can change by the power of Christ and for the glory of God. If you would believe, if you would believe. If only, if only there are a way to package that hope this morning. If only there was a way to dispense it this morning. See, there is. It has been packaged and it has been dispensed for 2,000 years. And the message that we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's true today, just as true as it was 2,000 years ago. That if you will turn from your sins, if you will turn from whatever lifestyle it is you are living and turn to Christ, you'll be saved. He's for you. God is for you. It is for the non-Christian and the Christian alike. The question this morning that I want to leave you with is, will all of you believe? Will you believe this morning from your heart? Some of you are in here, my brothers and sisters, Kahaloui Baptist Church, others who are visiting from other churches. Some of you in here are like, why is that message for Christians? What do you mean it's for Christians too? I already believed. Yes, this message is for you today. You say, why do you say that? Notice this, do you realize that in every section of this letter of 1 Timothy, that Paul cannot get hardly a few paragraphs away before he is talking about the gospel again. Take a brief survey with me, if you will. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's chapter 1, verse 15. Chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time, 1 Timothy 3, 16. So that's chapter 1, chapter 2, now we're in chapter 3. You guys remember this, the great Christ hymn. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. That's chapter 3. Now we're here in chapter 4. Paul can't get very far without constantly bending his mind, arcing his heart back to this glorious reality that Jesus died and rose again for his sins, and it makes a difference. See, this is for you, Christian. This is for you. Paul is writing to Timothy, a young pastor, reminding him of these things. This is for me. Beloved, you have to find a way to remind yourselves of these truths daily more often than you check Facebook. Ouch. We have to find a way to remind ourselves regularly, often, so that we are meditating and get caught up in this glorious reality. Why? Because it's so easy. It is so easy, and it happens like that, to get our mind and our eyes off of Christ, to forget that we were cleansed and to start living these old patterns. That is not us anymore. We have to remember that we have been washed. You are clean. And you are free. Live as those who have been set free. Our hope is set on the living God, who is a Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now let's turn to number three, the results of this hope the results of this hope. This is where we would get into what you could call our application, right? So that's the nature of our hope. It is a certainty based on the promises and the character of God. That is the object of our hope. God is not dead. He is alive, never to die anymore. Number three, why does this matter? What are the results that this hope produces? You're all here and you're all dressed up and you all look pretty. Most of you. Okay. (laughs) I'm just kidding. You're like, he's talking about me. I am. I am. No. Um, You're all here. You came. You brought your family. You came on your vacation. You're here visiting, whatever it is. Man, thank you for coming. And you want to know the worst thing I could do as a pastor this morning? to you, is let you waste your Sunday morning. I can let you waste it. And it would be very, very easy, and I will say millions of people sitting in churches across this country will waste their Easter this Sunday morning. That would be terrible, wouldn't it? I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to waste your Easter. How would I waste it, Pastor? What do you mean? How would I waste it? You would waste it, and it's very easy to do, by leaving here and nothing changes. That's how you will waste your time. Very easy to do. You can waste it by walking out of here saying, man, that was great. I just had such a good time. That pastor's so funny or so not. (laughs) And if nothing changes, you will have wasted your time. That's one way you can waste it. I don't want you to do that. I want you to live with this hope and this certainty that not only did Jesus rise again, but He is coming again. Because He rose again, He is coming again. And that hope that is certain, as certainly as His heart is beating as they were worshiping and grabbing hold of His feet, that hope changes everything. or at least it should. And that's what Paul does in the rest of this passage. He unpacks, if you will, how this hope changes us, how it causes us to live differently. Now Paul gives two basic commands. So it's pretty easy in this passage, two basic commands as to how we should live in spite or sorry, in light of this hope. The two basic commands, one's negative and one is positive. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Simple enough. Anybody anybody in here been giving yourself to irreverent silly myths? You're like, after this pasture, I have an irreverent silly myth to go to. All right? Please hurry up. I don't want to miss my irreverent silly myth. See, this is a negative command. It's actually paired with the following command to rather train yourself to godliness. And what Paul is urging his followers to do is a singleness of devotion to godliness. Because of this hope, because things have changed, because Christ is alive, devote yourself, train yourself for godliness. Don't let anything take you away from that because that holds profit for this life and for the life to come. I'm not going to get into all the silly myths and irreverent teachings that we can give ourselves, but they're endless. They're absolutely endless. The teachings, the beliefs, the philosophies, just they don't profit. They don't encourage holiness. They count for nothing. They're worthless and pointless and they're a waste of time and energy. You say, "How do I know if something's a silly myth?" Is it making you more like Christ? Is it making you more like Christ? Period. Is it hindering your devotion to Christ? Is it distracting you from Jesus? Then it is an irreverent, silly myth that is a waste of time. So Paul says, don't do that. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Get this, Christian, and even non-Christian, get this. You are always training for something, period. When you're sitting at home doing nothing, you're training for something by not training for something. When you're at work, you're training for something. What you are thinking on while you are at work, you are training for something. Whatever you do in your leisure time, you are training for something. We are always, always training, I ask you, how much time, this is for everybody, how much time do you spend training yourself for godliness? How much time? Think about it. So what Paul does is he invokes an athletic term, this term train, discipline yourself for godliness. Godliness. You know where this comes from? Actually, the underlying Greek word, so I'm going to get fancy so that you guys get your money's worth, all right? So you're like, all right, preacher boy, tell me something new, all right? Here it is. The word for train that we get, you know what it came down to us as? Gumnos. Ooh, everybody say ooh, ooh, right? That's where actually we get our word gym, gymnasium. See, the Greeks were really big into physical fitness and to the body. That's why you can go into these art museums and you see you know, all these, you know, statues of guys who are just kind of ripped before 300 was ever a thing because they were big into gymnasiums. And, and so they would build these statues and, and all these things and they would have gyms in every place, that in every city you could go to. And they would do it. They would train And the word literally meant originally naked. Naked. So the root word comes from naked. So they would train naked. It would be really easy to make a lot of jokes about this. But that's how they would do it. They would train naked. Why? Because they didn't want anything that would hinder their ability to exercise their body to the fullest. So if you think today's workout attire is immodest, the Greeks have us beat, my friend. They have us beat. So they would train naked. And Paul says, he's telling us to consider this level of devotion, not training naked, but to consider this level of discipline that an athlete trains with. It's a single-minded devotion, an unwillingness to be distracted, this extreme self-control that these athletes exercise in their sport. And he tells us, in like fashion, train yourself, discipline yourself for godliness. This is a type of discipline, friends, that says, run until you can run no more. And when you are about to pass out, start sprinting. That's the type of training, the type of energy, the type of devotion he has in mind. And you say, well, that kind of sounds like legalism. You say to work harder? Yes, I'm going to say to work hard. Godliness is not passive. It doesn't just happen, I wish I could just turn on my iPad, it's not the Bible, it would be so much easier if it was, and fall asleep with it on my face, and I would just be godly through osmosis. It doesn't happen that way. Godliness is not passive, it takes work, strenuous, arduous, joyful work. Why do we do it? Because we know we will be victorious, because our hope is set on a living God. And that is not legalism. Legalism says, I'm going to work to gain merit with God. It is man-centered. Disciplining yourself for godliness is God-centered. It says, I love God and I want to please God with all of my life. Therefore, I am going to work. There's a difference. There's a difference. This is a type of hope that flexes its muscles and work and discipline. And James says, "Faith without works is dead. Dead. We don't want dead faith. We want a living faith and a sure hope. I run across so many believers who know the storyline of the latest TV series and sitcom better than they know the storyline of the Bible. More men who tell me they aren't readers and yet can spout off stats and scores of years' worth of sports games, Super Bowls, and fantasy football information. There are more people who on one hand watch two to four hours a day and say they have no time to read their Bible, pray, or serve others. I encourage you, Christian, with the full weight, the full weight of Scripture and the promise of reward to lay before you, train yourself for godliness, and you will not be disappointed. You will not be disappointed. I think we can all say we have room to grow in this. You feel a little uncomfortable? Good. Good. Did you come to church to feel comfortable? You came to the wrong church. You came to the right church because you feel uncomfortable. I feel uncomfortable too as I was studying this. Now, for the non Christian in here, I want to thank you for coming. I want to ask you this morning what is your hope set in? What are you hoping in? Are you hoping in a spouse one day? Maybe you're hoping in a job in your family. Maybe, no, 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 you don't hope in any of those things, you hope in yourself. I can do this, I got this. Maybe you hope in your retirement. What are you hoping in? All of these things have a role to play for sure. But I want to invite you to set your hope on a steadfast rock on the living God who will never fail you. One pastor said it in speaking about money like this. In the year 2008, the God of money died and he isn't coming to life anytime soon. Still true. Don't think it can't happen again or things on a worse scale. I invite you, whatever your hope is in, if it is not in God, if you are not living for the glory of God, your hope will fail you. It's not may. It's not if. It will. It will fail you. You will die. And you will stand before a holy God. And in that day, you will have nothing to say. No excuses. No, well, what about God is love? Yes, he is love if you will turn and trust in Christ. What is your hope set on? I invite it to be set and placed on the living God who is the Savior of all people. See, hope has been packaged and dispensed effectively and it is currently being dispensed right now if you will take hope and grab hold of it. And I close. For to this end, for to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Do you believe this morning? Will you believe this morning? Let's pray. Father, if you will soften hearts, by your Spirit, if you will open eyes to the glorious reality that Jesus is alive, if you will open eyes, then they will see. If you will open ears, they will hear. And if you will open hearts, they will believe. Would you fill, fill these people with hope in Christ this morning, I pray, that we might live to the glory and praise of God and see a mighty movement across these islands and around the world. And may you get all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.